Well, I lied again. We won't be doing the professional this week, so hang on to the ingredients for that Negroni cocktail. Instead, we're making a call to the bullpen and bringing in a guest host for Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. Part travel narrative and part environmental expose, Abbey's book is a non-fiction account of a season spent in Arches National Park, one of the most stunning landscapes on the planet. Through a mixture of personal anecdote and political diatribe, Desert Solitaire paints a vivid picture of a land in transition. Unfortunately, my guest host Bill Hodges and I live in different parts of the country without access to the same craft beers, so you're free this week to choose whatever type of beer you'd most like to sip while drifting down the Colorado River. Pop the top and sit back. It's time for episode 43 of Toasting the Classics, Desert Solitaire. Welcome to Toasting the Classics. My name is Dave MacArthur. I've got a guest host on today. And uh, what's your name? My name is Bill Hodges. Bill, Bill Hodges. All right. And where are you? Where do you hail from? I am currently in Sacramento, California. Sacramento, California. That is not a desert-like region, is it? Not so much. No, it's cent- it's a central valley. Just about okay. dead center, central, central valley of California. Okay, but you're not far from a desert as the crow flies, are you? No, I mean, you, we've got a couple hundred miles to the north, northeast. We've got um, Susanville and the high Sierra up there. We've got, uh, you've got the high Sierra to about five hours if you go towards... Uh, East in any direction from you, once you cross the mountains, you're hitting a desert. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. And, that's, so, and that's really a few hours, about three hours. Right. That is a whole different desert than what we're talking about today, though. That's the, um, what, like the basin, the Great Basin Desert, basically? Is that what you get when you're out in Nevada? Yeah, you get up into the high high desert up there in Nevada. Have you, uh, have you listened to the show enough to be able to do the intro, like to talk about what we do on the show? Go for it. Go for it. I mean, it's difficult. It's harder than it seems. Trust me, I've been trying to get it down to an elevator pitch this last year. So, Okay, so... Uh, Toast in the Classics, the show where we uh, take a video or some form of media and we take it apart <laughs> to decide whether or not it is it fits whatever the requirements are to be a classic. And okay. um, and the requirement and for being it. a classic is that the, the requirement for being a classic is that we say it's a classic. So uh that's it that's all the requirements are so uh we also in addition to talking about it we drink a drink related to the classic and talk about the drink so there's yes. a little bit of drink drinking content in addition to the um brainy intellectual content of talking about mickey mouse cartoons so um <laughs> that, which so, is not what we're talking about today no not what we're talking about today you i let you choose what did you choose well we chose uh the book by uh author edward abbey um, okay. called Desert Solitaire. And he's got several other pretty famous ones, like the Monkey Wrench Gang. Yeah, and, the Monkey uh, Wrench Gang is well-known. Um, those are it, the two big ones, I think. But Yes, <clears throat> so he, he wrote he wrote several books. Desert Solitaire was his first. His last book, I think, was um, was turned into a film, actually. There, in fact, there were a couple of his books that were, turned, that were, were novelized films. There was The Brave Cowboy in 1961, and that was well, there was a famous there was an actor who was in the movie and there was like an interview where he was talking about how he didn't like Edward Abbey and Edward Abbey he had said all these bad things about him. And then afterwards, he, they were like, he was like, oh, I, I never met him. I don't know. That was Kirk Douglas. 
Kirk Douglas, that's who it was. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, because yeah. it was being shot was. on location. He uh, in, originally said in, in this interview that he did that Abby talked too much like Gary Cooper. And so he didn't like yes. it. He does kind of look like Gary Cooper, though. I can see it. Yeah. I looked it up. I went and I, and I looked for a picture of Gary Cooper and I was like, yeah, OK, I can kind of see that. I don't know whether that's his fault, whether like whether like that means that he's not a cool guy because it looks too much <laughs> like Gary Cooper, whatever. What's wrong with Gary Cooper? So why did you pick this? Well, you know, we were you and I have some history in conservation and I have a conservation we do. background. We, you know, we initially we had started talking and thinking about the book and you had sent me a copy of, uh, I think, a, a while back, a copy of the book Sand County Almanac, which uh-huh. yeah. uh, by, by Aldo Leopold, who's another well-known conservationist and who and was apparently a big a big uh, influence on edward abbey he was indeed and um, as, as i was reading the book i was definitely like okay this is very similar i actually came out thinking leopold's a better writer but they're very similar they're very so they're very very the same kind of facts coming through and everything like about about where he's going and it just seemed very similar in a lot of ways and i think leopold probably predates him by 30 or 40 years right um yeah because i think i think sand county was written in like the 30s that'd be my guess yeah exactly yeah. so this one was kind of surprising because uh so it's not my biggest surprise or anything because because frankly i had very little idea what i was going to get in reading this book uh except that i know lots of people who are conservation minded were into it so i knew it was going to be some kind of an exploration of conservation but i was surprised that it was as far back as it is that the book is written in the late 60s but it's talking about the 50s well, let's let's talk about what's the what's the book about? Where does he go? When does he what's what's so the basic? He spends in in 1956, 1957, he works in, as a ranger for okay. the National Park Service at what is now Arches National Park out just outside of Moab, uh, Utah, which I was surprised to find was a national monument at the time, although having been to Arches quite a few times, it's one of my favorite places. It's kind of the size and scope of a national monument, more so than a park. Canyon it's it's lands, smaller in the scale in, in terms of when you think of national park, you think Yosemite, right. you think Yellowstone. Exactly. Yeah, there are quite a few national parks that are small, but I always kind of, I'm always kind of like, should this really be a national, like Hot Springs, for instance, National Park in Arkansas, is just like this little town that had hot springs that people used to go to in the 20s. And I'm like, this should be a National Historic Park. This really doesn't merit National Park status. You know, I don't obviously whenever anybody like is trying to get rid of a national park, I'm always on the side of protecting the national park. But sometimes I'm like, let's make sure that we only call the things that should be national parks, national parks. Like, let's let's keep that sacred. What are what are the the qualifications for national park status versus national monument or national, for example, historic park status? I don't know about the difference between the historic parks. I think it's essentially just kind of what they cover. But for the major difference between monuments and parks is the level of congressional authorization that's needed and then how permanent it is. Like, it'd be very difficult. Like, Donald Trump obviously hates national parks and wants to turn them all into parking lots and stuff like that. But he couldn't go in and declassify Yellowstone. That would take all kinds of, you know, intervention by lots of different parties. I mean, I I don't really think it would be ever possible, which is kind of the point, right? It's supposed to be protected forever against anybody. I think monuments are less so. A monument could still be stepped back to some extent. Like there's a lot of the president's 
So I believe it seems to me, I, I don't think it can be quite right. I don't hundred percent know the law, but like there's this gigantic national monument out in the Pacific that Obama called a national monument. I don't know that he had to ask anybody about it. Clinton did the same thing, named a bunch of places as national monuments out West. Yeah, it can be pretty controversial because obviously we're talking about huge, huge areas of land in a lot of these cases. And some of them you're kind of like, you know, does all this really need to be, you know, there's a lot of land here around uh, Las Cruces that's designated as desert, it's Oregon Mountains and Desert Peaks National Monument, I think is what it's called. And it's like this checkerboard all, all around the city in various places, some of which you're sort of like, uh, maybe people should still be able to run their cattle there. I don't, I don't really know that that needs to be protected. And so a, a pr- sitting president can declare a location a national monument. But I believe right. that it actually requires congressional action to, to turn it, one of those loca- locations, into a national park. Yes, that, that's, that's the impression I get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how I would have phrased it. So. He's in Moab, Utah. Not really living in Moab itself, but living in the park. Right. Uh, on a, in like a trailer with a ramada that he constructed outside for shade and like a very uh, bare bones kind of living situation. The park is not paved at the time. He's talking about that a lot. So they're not getting a whole lot of visitors. Have you been to Moab, by the way? I've never been to Moab. Uh, unfortunately, oh, I, wish yeah. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could speak to it directly. But um. I don't know that I can say that it's the most beautiful place on earth. But I think it's pretty close to being one of it's it's one of the most beautiful places in America. I can tell you that I've been almost everywhere in this country. And I can say Moab is every time I go, I'm just just struck with the, the, the especially if you like rocks in any way. If, you're in, if, if rock formations are interesting to you at all, the, the sandstone formations and canyons and the rivers all around the city. I mean, city's a strong word, but whatever. You know, I think it's it's considerably bigger than it was in Edward Abbey's time, which I think it was about 5000 people living in Moab. But today it's still not a huge town. I mean, it might have 10 or 15000 people or something. Um, it, it spreads quite. A, there's quite a bit of sprawl up the river valley there out from uh, Moab itself. Yeah, the town is where the Colorado River and the Green River come together. And I think it's where the Colorado is coming into the town. There's quite a bit of um you know, suburban sprawl kind of going up the river there, but you know, it's it's, uh, it's bigger than it was in 1956 or whatever, whatever we're talking about. Is that what he said? 1956. Yeah, that's when he was a ranger. There it was 56, 57. Okay. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, and I and I think that that aspect of it, it turning into and it being uh, what he referred to as industrialized recreation. That was a bit. That was a major theme for him throughout, and really was kind of the underpinning of of his whole conservation and really protect it, protection philosophy. You know, so while we have like Leopold, who was very much a conservationist, you have Edward Abbey, who is who is more of a protection, a or yeah. someone who doesn't want to see development at all. Well, I think in Aldo Leopold's time. I don't think he could have imagined thousands and thousands of people visiting the places in the Southwest that Edward Abbey's talking about. It just wasn't happening at that degree. Uh, The first time I went to Arches was in about 1997. And I've been there seven or eight times over the years. And I can say that it has gotten, I mean, when you go now, anytime after, you know, anytime during the summer year, summer months, there's a traffic jam waiting to get into the park for like a mile leading out of the park. I think Edward Abbey would have had a heart attack and died if you saw it. I mean, it's just it's just absolutely what he didn't want the park to turn into. Well, now, that was, and that was what he was predicting, though, because he was saying right. we don't want it to turn into some place like Yellowstone or Yosemite where where they were already seeing that kind of 
the oh, that amount of traffic. I've been to Yellowstone a bunch of times too. And the only time I really truly enjoyed it versus like when I think about compared to other parks is when I went in the uh, like early fall, I went yeah. in October one time and there was hardly anybody there. And it was, I was like, Oh, Oh, Yellowstone's actually a really beautiful place. Isn't it? Cause when you're there in the summer and there's a million people in the park, you're like, this is like Disney world. I want to get out of here right now. Like this is not, if you get away from the ring road into the back country, Yellowstone, it's much nicer that every foot, every step you take away from the road, it gets better. But you know, it's just, um, it's, it's rough. It's and, rough. And, it, and think... it's the same. And it's the same with Yosemite, right? I mean, you have, you have a, you have a seven square mile area in Yosemite. Yeah. Right. Valley. And that's, yeah. and that's the thing. As soon as you get out of, out of Yosemite Valley, as soon as you start going out Tioga towards Tuolumne and right. the high country, you see far fewer people. And you, and as soon uh-huh. as you get off of any sort of paved road, you're, you you right. see very 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 few people. I, I, my favorite memories of Yosemite are being up where you're talking about. I remember walking across the big there's big granite slabs oh, yeah. that just like go on for like a mile at a time that you can walk on and stuff like right there at the pass I think. And I remember getting out there and hiking and being like, oh, this again Yosemite is actually a really nice place when there's not like you know 50 people and campers you know parked in front of you. It's one of the most one of the least democratic things you can think. A lot of the time, right? Like the, the, you set aside these places. It's supposed to be for the people. And then right. there's this tendency you get there and you're like, I hope no people will come here. You know, <laughs> like yeah, this place right. is beautiful. Like, and it's set aside. The country's paying to set it aside and nobody can live here so that just me can go and visit. So that just I know? can do it. Right. And, and it's totally, you feel that way. You know, like at my favorite parks are always the ones where like hardly anybody goes. To them. There's this place here in, uh, in Southeastern Arizona called Chiricahua. And there's still be a few visitors there, but it's a spectacular place. And there's just hardly anybody, hardly ever anybody there. And I'm like, this is what I want a national monument to be. Like, that's actually why I usually prefer the national monuments to the parks. Is because they're because less visited. I think people have a list of 57, 58 parks, whatever it is today, and they're like, we got to go cross up all these parks. So there's just always a bunch of sort of casual visitors at the national parks. There's a few where that's not the case. Um, but for the most part, I think there's just a lot of people that, you know, like he's like he's complaining about a lot of road trippers, you know, like showing up and they're looking out the window and taking a picture. I don't really see a lot of that. Yellowstone's the only place where I really see a lot of that. Like you see a lot of people where you're like, could you just go to Disney World? Because I know that's where you really want to be. You know, like. Well, and that's a, a part of the thing about Yellowstone is how easy it is to see, be able to see nature there. I mean, you're, you know, you mm-hmm. drive, you drive around the figure eight there in Yellowstone and you, you can see, you get, you have bison jams, right? Yes. Literal, literally yes. yeah. pe- being Absolutely. blocked in yeah. miles of traffic because right. six or seven bison have decided that they're not moving. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we did. We were there. We, we went right through um, last summer. We went around sort of I'm trying to remember what the name of the area is. It's, it's farther in the back country, but it is on the paved road. And we drove through, I mean, just. I, it must have been 500 bison. I mean, it was a huge herd of bison and they were all over the road. Some of them were on the road blocking cars and they were just, I mean, they were it, maybe not 500, but it was a lot, a lot more bison than I've ever seen in my life. I got out of the car and I was like taking a picture and there was this male, bo- male bison like doing a wallow, like maybe 60, 70 feet away. And I was like, taking a picture with one hand, but with the car door and the other, because I was like, if he gets up, I'm jumping back in the car. <laughs> and then you see other people that are like walking right up to them. And I'm like, 
Yes. I'm like, the bison's probably not going to kill you, but like only probably. So I worked at I worked I worked at Yellowstone Lodge. So I was working at the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone and at the Yellowstone River, and then Yellowstone okay. Falls wasn't far from there. That was one thing that we communicated to every single guest that we had. Right. Don't walk up to these creatures. Don't walk up. It's to amazing. Them. And yet. The, people ignore it. Same with bears, another and deer, for that matter. Um, in, now I don't know. I, okay, I understand how somebody whose life experience of animals is cows, extrapolating from cow to bison and being like a bison's probably not. I, I kind of get that instinct. I do not understand a person who's not afraid of a bear. Like the first fairy tales we read as children involve bears eating people how do you not learn <laughs> that a bear is dangerous i don't care if you're from new york city you gotta know bears it's not a good thing to walk up to but right but yet you hear about people doing it all the time go up and like feed a bear i'm just like i i there was a guy talking the other day he was like he was talking about how we don't we don't have um grizzly bears in new mexico all we have is tiny little black bears and the black bear can't do anything to you. And I'm like, oh yeah, they can't. The smallest bear you're ever going to see is capable of killing you in five seconds if it wants to. It's a very big, powerful, dangerous animal. Like you do not want to go mess with a bear of any kind. Maybe maybe one of those little sun bears creature. But anyway, we're not really talking about the book at all, are we? Let's um let's let's pop a drink. Okay. All right. I like it. Um, what do you got? So I I got um, Auburn Ale House Gold Country Pilsner. Gold Country Pilsner. Gold Country meaning like the places where people used to do mining in California. So Auburn is northwest of Coloma. So Coloma is where where the Sutter's Mill where Sutter found gold for the first time. Okay. And actually right. Auburn was originally going to be the capital of California. Okay. Initially, in fact, they, there's if you ever go to Auburn, California, they built a big a big capital building there. You got a Gold Country beer from Auburn, okay? And that's what? That's a Pilsner? It's a Pilsner, yeah. You know you our cans look similar. Even though we ended up with different I went with uh Santa Fe uh Santa Fe Brewing Company Pilsner. Because I was trying to find something from at least the desert southwest, and that was the best I could do. Um, Abby talks about beer quite a bit, as we mentioned. He does, um, but doesn't really doesn't really go into a lot of specifics. He has the buddy, the Basque guy, that likes to drink a lot. And there's there's the story about the uranium mining. Well, so there's so let's talk a little bit. Let's get back to the book. We've been pontificating about like you know conservation in general. What uh, what's the, what's the book like? So I mean, he he goes through a lot of different stories, right? About yeah. these yeah. about different events, different um, experiences that he has in these di- in these different locations. He talks about the, the meeting up with a guy who's a prospector for uranium, and he talks about the going out and finding some person who had like been killed and going out with like the SAR team. And he talks about his interactions with with guests and tourists coming to the park and how, and then, and then his, and his interactions. And what I personally, what I found kind of interesting is, is his experience that he wrote about regarding his experience with the supervisors and the superintendents of the park districts of the, of the national park areas coming in and talking about how they wanted to get the area developed. Oh, we, you're going to be so, it's going to be so great. We're going to come in. We're going to pave all of this. We're going to have a store. Right, we're going to have a right. visitor center. We're going to get, because we want it, because they want to make money. Yeah, that's weird. Cause that's definitely not like a lot of people talk about that with like government programs. They'll be like, if I ran my business this way and it's like, well, let me stop you there. It's not a business. The national park is not supposed to turn a profit. 
that's fine. I mean, yes, it would be nice if you could make enough money to sort of cover some of the expenses or something, you know, to sustain why, itself, to sustain itself. I mean, why, you know, why leave money on the table that you, that otherwise you've got to su- supply with taxes, but overall the purpose is to protect the park and to let people see the park. Right. It's not to make money. It's not, it's not a business, you know, no, we're not going to pave parts of it and put up motels inside the park and things like that. That has happened in several places. I don't know if you've ever been to Smoky, to the Great Smoky Mountains. Several of the cities that enter enter the park, because it's apparently, I think it still gets the most visitors of any park, because it's a large, very beautiful park, but it's extremely proximate to the East Coast. So lots and lots of people go there. And there are a couple of towns like Gatlinburg, and Pigeon Forge, and places like that that are just, I mean, like Dollywood is there and stuff like that. I mean, it's like, it's like low, it's like blue collar, no, blue collar is the wrong word for it. It's a poor man's Disney World, let's just say, you know, like going leading up for miles and miles. It's like a Ripley's Believe It or Not in Gatlinburg, like right outside the National Park. I've always wondered whether it's because it's so popular or whether it's just sort of a product of a different time when people thought of a park in a different way. Like Abby's talking about these people coming to see the park and and he's he's talking about what they're like. And I'm like, that's not what National Park visitors are like. They're not all like just there to peek out. People really go there to go hiking and camping and get out in the wilderness and stuff. There's, I think there's just a broader conservation-minded attitude in society today. And especially for your people that actually get out and go see a park. Like nobody would litter in the national park. I don't, not very many people would do that today. People would m- be more likely to call someone out for seeing if mm-hmm. they were to see someone yeah. throwing a throwing yeah. an empty beer can or a piece of trash on the on the ground. Now, or feeding animals. Or feeding, feeding animals. animals is something. I mean, I've seen that a bunch of times. You know, we're on those hot springs at Yellowstone. There's like a boardwalk that goes around in the various places. Yeah. And multiple times, I saw people their hats blow off like into the spring. And I'm like, that's just, they didn't mean to do it. They're not jerks. I mean, it's not intentional kind of but, dope for letting it. Right. It's not intentional. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think he had a huge concern around creating more areas that were like Yellow, the Yellowstone and, and the, the, the Yosemite of the time right. where we just start getting these mass influxes. Right. Right. And, and I think you're right that uh, there are a lot more people now that have more of a conservation mindedness to them yeah but even when i was working i and i've I've worked in both of those big parks right i worked in both yosemite and yellowstone and i saw and i I saw it was it was really cool i wish i really wish i'd done that that's really neat i it was it was i mean it it was foundational to i think kind of creating sure for one for me going on getting a degree in in environmental science Uh, right yeah so okay oh well there you go we didn't talk about your credentials that's a good one yeah. I knew you got you got one also in like uh, media, media communication, something like that, right? So, yeah, so I have a I have my undergrad in environmental science I, and then I have master's degree. I have two master's degrees, one in journalism, essentially, and one in uh, education. And now I'm, and, okay. and now I, and now I teach uh, middle school science and elementary. So, yeah. But, but anyway, yeah. So we met working at the National Wildlife Federation in D.C. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you would- I had I had just gotten out of law school and I loved the idea of getting into environmental law or conservation law or something like that. So I went and got a job there, an internship there. And it was it was a great experience. But um, I found politics to be a big turnoff. Just everything about the process of politics. I was just like, I don't really want anything to do with this. Like, uh, I just completely changed my tack, even though I really liked working in something that was important. That. I just didn't like the compromises you have to make when you're when you're in politics. Absolutely, you know? I, I wanted to work specifically 
you know, like find some preserve that with pandas and protect them directly. I didn't want to be involved in some great big project of lobbying and stuff and not really see a lot of concrete result. I, I guess I'm kind of immature is what I'm saying. I, I didn't, I wasn't willing to make the compromises that you have to make in order to actually make things happen. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, I think that was definitely my takeaway from my, from my, my time there working with NWF. Mm -hmm. uh, going did you work in, the, did you work other, did you work in other conservation places in DC? Didn't you work for? No, well, so I work for another organization. I work for the Center for Science in the Public Interest, CSPI. Okay. Um, my, okay. The, the influence was, or the, the emphasis was less on uh, the environment and more on right. kind of just government agency overwatch. So the book, to get back to it, is kind of a hodgepodge of different stories, like you said. I found myself much more interested in the, in the parts of the book that were just like a story. Like there's the one he writes about him and his buddy going on like a paddling trip down the Colorado uh, through Glen Canyon before they dammed it up. And like, that was, I was like, this is great. I could read this all day. There's a part where he tells a story. It's supposed to be like sort of a local legend about a guy that gets ripped off, sold like a false uranium claim and then murdered by the guy that sold it to him. And then of course it turns out to actually be a valid uranium claim later. But anyway, that story was really good. I was, I was kind of on the edge of my seat reading that one. And um, what were the other ones? I'm trying to think what the other stories were. Well, the ones the ones that I think stuck out the most to me were where he's going in. He, you know, he's having. It was almost like he was having these interactions with people, but then also he's in it. He's at his trailer, and he finds him. He finds a couple of rattlesnakes hanging out underneath the uh -huh. the, yeah. the trailer. So he goes out and he finds what were they? Were they like I think gopher? They were they were, they were he gopher snakes. He finds a gopher snake. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 just I, I found I thought that was great. I and I felt like it was it was really expository and it was and that part of it was really really well written. Yeah, I like that. I, you know what I was thinking about that? He gets the gopher snake and has it living in his trailer, and I was just like, I don't I don't really have like a phobia of snakes anymore. Like really, they don't really bother me, but I do not want a snake of any description freely living in, in my house. Yeah. yeah, I just, the shape and the appearance of a snake, especially suddenly, is just always going to give me, like Emily Dickinson said, there's that poem, you know, she wrote about like, uh, just that you almost feel like a slight heart attack when you see a snake. I don't care what it is or why it's there. It doesn't matter what kind of snake moment. it is. Yeah. Well, because you just have that moment of like, you don't know what kind of snake it is. So you better react as if it's going to kill you or you could be dead. You know, you know, I see snakes here when I hike. I've run into a couple of rattlesnakes from time to time. But mostly we, you know, half of the time they're just, you know, non-poisonous snakes, non-venomous snakes. No reason to be excited. But you still just have that moment of like, oh, people just shoot rattlesnakes here. Like I went, there's, wow. the, there's a neighborhood, there's a neighborhood over like kind of on the edge of town towards the National Monument. And uh, I went to a party there and we were walking between houses and uh, the guy gets a flashlight and his revolver. And he just like, he's like, oh, you know, like, well, I got it. I got I was like, I was like, I understand the flashlight because there might be a rattlesnake. But why the revolver? He's like, so I can shoot the rattlesnake. And I'm like, why do you have to shoot? Why do you have to shoot the rattlesnake? Just leave it alone. Don't step on it. What do you Sleep, give what, it a space. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is the purpose of that? Like, is you're not going to kill the last rattlesnake in the neighborhood and then nobody will have to worry about rattlesnakes anymore. Like it's, there's always going to be more of them. I don't know. That's just, I never understood. One guy, I know a guy here who saw a rattlesnake in his garage, which, okay. In that case, I get it. Probably you need to eliminate the snake. It can't be in your garage, but he shoots at it with his revolver in his garage and shattered his own eardrum 
firing in the garage at a rattlesnake. And I'm like, wow. I think the rattlesnake would have been less of a problem for you. Like if you just went and picked it up and threw it outside. Like, And you get both extremes. My my grandfather told me a story. He worked for PG&E for, for years and years, and he was a field clerk. And he had this guy who was on his crew. And this guy was a little bit crazy, would carry around a lunch pail and would trap, would actually capture rattlesnakes in his uh-huh. lunchbox and then walk around with his lunchbox and have like a, a rattlesnake in his lunchbox and let's just carry it around with him and then let it oh. let it free later. Yeah, I, I like that bit about the snakes. Um, he had a he had a rattlesnake like living under his porch, basically. Right. And decided he had to get rid of it. And I think so the gopher snake think? did the job. Yeah. Yeah, the go- it makes sense. Gopher snakes are like um, there's another kind of snake that does the same thing that lives, I think, out, out your way. No, it's gopher snakes. snakes. It's gopher snakes. King, King snakes also hunt other snakes, but gopher snakes specifically go for rattlesnakes and they mimic rattlesnakes. They make like a like a sound with their mouth. It sounds like a rattlesnake's uh, shake. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, they definitely, they'll, they'll get rid of rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes are not going to want to live around a gopher snake. So definitely, I got to get you to Moab if you've never been. Yes. I will, I will come out west sometime and we'll meet up in, in Moab because we're going to go one more time up there before we, before we go back east. You are okay. At least so, yeah. Karina and I've been going there since like before we lived out here. That's like one of our favorite places. So we're definitely going to go back. What do you think of uh, what do you think of his politics, Edward Abbey's politics? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I so I've read so I've read Desert Solitaire and I've read The Monkey Wrench Gang and The Monkey okay, Wrench so Gang. You've got, you've got more more basis than I do. I, I haven't read Monkey Wrench. So the Monkey Wrench Gang is 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 really the. I think the premise for how for his environmental philosophy and really led to I think his interactions and and some of his politics be, were that he would he became involved with organizations like Earth First for good and bad I think Earth First played an important role in in environmentalism and and in particularly specifically the protection of the redwoods and ancient redwoods. Um, but Earth First, Earth First. So if I if I if I'm getting this right and if I'm remembering my my sort of history of it right, to me I think organizations like Earth First sort of play an analogous role to like the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X and the civil rights struggle. It's like an important part of the struggle, but not really the right way to go in a lot of ways. If you know what I mean, like definitely I think, important. I think, to have, I think it's, it's almost important to have that threat, that like yes. sort of threat of a little bit of violence in the background. You know, even though that's really probably not the right thing to do. I sort of used to dream about being an eco-terrorist when I was a little kid, by the way. I used to, like, want to go and spike bulldozers and things like that when I was a little kid. Like, Well, and that's where that comes from. I mean, you read you read the Monkey Wrench Gang, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're putting they're putting salt in the gas tanks and right. cutting the right. cutting the lines. And and, you know, I think but I think I think grassroots movements leading to social change um, no. and direct action for that matter, has has always been part of any social movement. Oh, um, yeah. Well, de- no question about that. But I'm talking about specifically the sort of element of a little bit of violence being yeah. like a part of it. You know? I mean, are we, are we talking and when when we're uh, when we're talking about violence, are we talking about um, violence to people or are we talking about violence, violent uh, destruction of property? I think there's a blurry line between the two, because I think when you threaten property damage, especially if it's somebody's livelihood, you're probably going to be involving some elements of violence to people because well, people are going to protect off, their, is what you're doing. You're pissing people off, but you're, they're also like, if I go and spike somebody's bulldozer, 
that's their livelihood if I destroy that. They, they kind of would be within their rights if they sort of use a little bit of violence to protect that bulldozer, if you see what I mean. Like, you could see why somebody would, you know, if you go and throw a Molotov cocktail at somebody's house and you're like, no, I'm just, I'm just d- doing damage to property. And it's like, yeah, but I live in this property, you know, like, and right. sort of, it's, I'm going to defend that property. Somebody might get hurt or somebody probably will get hurt. Not even might, but. Well, and I think, and, and eventually, you know, Earth first with the uh, spiking of trees and those processes halted and they stopped because there was right. a recognition of that. There was a recognition right. of, well, right. we don't we don't want to cause harm and violence to people necessarily. Right. But we, right. but we but we still believe strongly in the protection of these thousand year old sure i mean i think there's just been a movement away from violence and those kinds of things even even the ira today what they'll do is they'll they'll plant a car bomb but then they call the police and tell the police they planted a car bomb so that everybody knows they're serious enough to plant a car bomb but like they really don't want anybody to get hurt by the car bomb and i'm like it's on the one hand you're sort of like thank goodness things have moved that way but on the other hand it's kind of farcical you know it's like why don't you find some other means of doing things and that's kind of ridiculous but well what i mean um, what what was the reason that you know you had the ira doing those things and initially i mean it'd be a whole different can of worms to get into you know but um, because people were passionate about people were passionate about it and because they felt as though they needed somehow they needed the attention of right. people making the decisions. Yeah, yeah. As a as a scholar of as a scholar of sort of military philosophy, I can tell you, like Clausewitz said that um, politics. Sorry, war is the continuation of politics by other means. So there's always this spectrum, right? Where to some extent you have you, you want to use violence to get your political ends. There's always going to be a temptation to do that because it does work. So uh, it it does get it does get it to, anyway. It does get attention, but what I actually was saying, I wasn't so much, I didn't really, I haven't read Monkey Wrench. I had the impression that that's what it was about, but I was talking about some of his, uh, I don't even want to say controversial, but like, he's kind of a little bit bigoted in a lot of ways. I, towards Native Americans in towards particular, Native in Americans, that book. He's, he's, but it's, but then I kept thinking about it because he says different things and like clearly yes. some of the things he, he, he refers to naked, indolent savages. And at first I was like, is that meant to be a joke? Because he seems to be kind of, it's like one of these old fashioned people that actually had a lot of interactions with native people and had, there was bigotry. They were bigoted towards them, but at the same time, they also kind of understood them and, and, and lived like he lives with a native tribe at one point. And you're like, I don't think he hates these people. There's just this level of like closed mindedness culturally. It's, it's, and, a, it's the noble savage syndrome. Right. It's a little bit of the noble savage syndrome, but it's also kind of looking down on them, not even thinking yeah. that they're noble. It's just kind of like. Interestingly, of you see the though, same yeah. thing with Muir and Muir's writing. I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. any of John Muir's actual writing. But well, he John was... Muir, I know I read um, uh, Letters from the Sierra or whatever, the, whatever the, the big one. I, I had like a, a collection of his writings from from huh, what the heck was it? Was there is there a name to that book that I'm trying to Blank the, anyway. the wilderness world of John Muir, I think, is is the one that I've and 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 it and it is really just a collection of his writing. And then you also I think get this into one was just a collection. Yeah. Yeah. This was a collection of his. But if John Muir is like, he's circa the Civil War, so he's, he's well, just, no, he's he was. I mean, that was that was fight over that was the fight over Hetch Hetchy, which was 1916, led leading to the creation of the National Park Service in 1916. 
but well, the, he was he was still around it, but I mean, he's writing the the the, the letters I was reading were like eighteen eighties, like, yeah, pretty yeah. far back. So it's yeah. really not surprising that you know, I mean, he's saying it doesn't come up much, but he's pretty pretty like racist against black people it comes up a couple of times and you're like dude you're, it's california in the 1870s why are you even talking about that you know but okay fine you know it, it just kind of comes out of nowhere you're like why don't we just not talk about that subject it's really um why, let's why just, we, let's just why are we going there Mirror? it's like why, why, why are we is, going why there Abby? why is yeah why is grandpa why is grandpa telling us about what he thinks about black people again like let's just not have the conversation grandpa you know like but anyway it's like bringing up COVID at christmas but so abby I mean, abby actually talks about mirror um Okay. Yeah, he does. He did. He talked okay. about Mirror a bit in there, uh, in a, a, a couple times. He talked about Mirror. He talked okay. about Thoreau. He talked about Leopold. Um, so you know, and and his That's true. We didn't even me- we didn't even mention how much Thoreau hangs over this work. I mean, Thoreau's probably the original one of these guys, right? Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if there's anybody that really predates Thoreau in this sort of genre. Of no, because even because even even Muir was looking at at him. Yeah. I mean, I Thoreau. So he's the one that protested the Mexican War by spending a night in jail, right? Yeah, that's, he wrote he, and his essay so, "Civil" his essay "Civil Disobedience." Civil was, disobedience is from the from jail after the Mexican War. So we're talking about the eighteen forties. Yeah, uh, you're going way back with Thoreau. There's probably somebody before that. I mean, there's Audubon. Even when you read Lewis and Clark's journals, there's a little bit of this kind of mentality. I mean, Kant, when was when you, when Kant was kind of transcendentalism? Right, Kant, I don't know, he doesn't write much about nature. That I, well, Kant would have been almost like a contemporary of Thoreau, I think. Well, no, earlier, a little earlier. Yeah, yeah that's true. Earlier. Yeah, yeah. He talks about Pablo Neruda and Robert Frost, and he's got a lot of. He's he, he goes to great lengths to try to make you think that he's very educated. He does. I, I sometimes I felt like it was sort of, you know, irrelevant. Like, why are you talking about that? But in that regard, yeah, I felt a lot of times he was like he was repeating himself. Over and over, and he, and, a, and in yeah. a few in a few spots, he's he's like he's just making these like page multi page long lists yes. of like yes. of different plants and animal species, and you're like, okay, we get it. You're, oh you're yeah, first. yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely, definitely, yeah. Well, some it, it felt like a journal. Yeah, yeah, right. And I'm like, on the one hand, it's kind of like that that it's the era of Kerouac and like free and free stream stream of consciousness and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I was like is there a is there a thesis running through all these different excerpts or anything anything other than there is a conflict between you know the drive for conservation and the and the drive to let people see these places i mean that's sort of the general conflict he's describing but why did he choose the particular stories that he did and did they all have something to say about it i don't really a lot of it was about, I guess, people from the East coming in to get the resources and kind of killing the West. But in that, almost all these stories had something to do with that, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think I think that was I think that was some genuine like development. Uh, the storyline talking starting kind of starting with his appreciation of being out there in in the Utah desert, and then leading into those experiences that he started having with people, and then those experiences that he started having with the government, and then other experiences, and then talking about how much he valued all of these things, which started getting him into these tangents about the these other prior authors. Yeah, he talked about this one thing where he's trying to draw a distinction between civilization and culture. Remember that bit? Yeah. He's like, yeah. civilization is this, and culture is this, and I was like, I, I wasn't getting it. About? I wasn't. I yeah. was not. I, was, I wasn't getting his. He's like. His... He was like civilization is like everything that's good, essentially, 
and then culture is everything that's bad and i'm like what like what why what, where's that coming from like and it, the distinction made no sense to me and it so much reminded me i don't know if you kind of read along with the podcast but it was so much like zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance the guy's just going on and on about his philosophy and you're like dude this philosophy is not that good like can we just drop this i'm really interested in your story with your son driving across the country like i don't want to hear you chautauqua about you know I don't know. The civilization culture thing seemed meaningless to me. I, I seem like it felt just, it's just like we said on a previous episode, like just bloviating. I really liked the story about the, the dead hiker. That one really stuck in my head. Did you, you remember that one? Yeah. I think that was probably some, some of the best writing in the book. Yeah. It was really, cause to me, that was just like, I don't even a hundred percent know. Again, I don't know what his thesis with that was. But that was a very lurid, you know, it was very like it, it really, really hit like concretely stuck in my memory as a story. And I kept thinking about that guy, you know, going out there. And there was a story about how he did the little climb where he almost got himself caught in the in the waterfall. Right. Or, right, not in the, right. In the or, or he did because he had to because he had to like yeah. climb up. I mean, I've, I've I haven't had an, an experience like that where I'm so far out remote by myself i've had a couple of moments out there in the desert uh and not usually alone a couple times alone i definitely have had a couple of things where i was like you know you slip a little bit and you're like okay that didn't end up being anything but if it had been like then what you know what if i fell here and i broke my leg or something like it'd be really difficult to get home there's i remember one time i hiked up to this sort of you know higher elevation valley area up here in the mountains and i got up there and i realized i was running low on time and I'm looking back and I can see where the arroyo, there's like a stream bed and an arroyo going down. And I'm like, oh, that goes to right where my car is. And I go following down the arroyo and I get to this point where there's a dry waterfall. It's like 30 or 40 feet drop. And part of me was like, I can get down this. Like I could get down here. Like this wouldn't. And then I was just like, what am I even thinking? And I actually turned around and like retraced my steps and went all the way back. And that's, I'm, I'm right outside of town. I'm 10 miles outside of the city, you know, like it's not even that remote, but remote enough that you might die if you if you got hurt but i don't know uh, where he was when he got caught in that situation was that when they went like out towards capitol reef when he was uh well you haven't been to utah at all i guess you said yeah so you, I, I don't have i don't have a whole lot to speak to there but he was yeah. talking about but he was talking and then and then his discussion where they're going down uh into glen canyon that experience as well with his with his friend where they like they just stop and they like they get out and they camp and they, you know, they make a little campfire and they're making some food. And then those those parts of it, I think if he if he if it had been a book of these short essays where he's talking about those things, where he's yeah. talking about these experiences, they seem the most I, they, I, th- I just feel like they, they were the most relatable. Yeah, I thought so, too. The, the sort of little stories, the little sidebar stories that he told, there were a couple of them and just the experiences that he wrote about. I, I just would have read it for that. Yeah. I didn't really need um, a whole lot of other stuff. Like I didn't need an intellectual framework for it. In other words, I guess is what I'm saying. I didn't need it to, to try to be more than that. than just a series of stories about, about the year. I don't know. So usually we talk about it on the show. I don't, you, I think you do listen. So you probably have an idea. We usually have our biggest surprise. So what, what would you say was your biggest surprise? I mean, you've read it before. No, this is my first time reading this. this oh, one. okay. All right. Yeah. I think that my biggest surprise was probably that was probably the distinction between just the the writings of those experiences versus 
the quality of his writing when he's kind of doing that the philosophizing. Right. I don't think he does a good job structuring those those bits um, enough to make them interesting to me. I agree. I agree. Um, I also I, I I had originally thought that it was a fiction. I had initially thought that, oh, it was gonna, okay. that it was actually a fictional novel. No, I was expect what? Why is Monkey Wrench Gang? Is that fictional? Monkey Wrench? Monkey Wrench Gang is fictional. Yes. Oh, how interesting! I didn't. Oh, that's a great surprise then. Oh, I like that. That's good because I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. I I had the idea that this was going to be like Aldo Leopold living in, at Arches. So I was. I, I kind of had that right. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. If you thought it was going to be fictional. That, yeah, because, oh, that makes me that definitely makes me want to try to read a monkey wrench gang because if it's a whole different kind of thing it is so i think uh, yeah and not i mean i guess i guess having read monkey wrench gang in the past and then going and uh-huh. kind of expecting something similar how about so, you uh i would say my biggest surprise in reading it so i had kind of a vague idea of what it was going to be about i was pleasantly surprised that it was focused on the moab area because like i said i just love that place and just even I'm not that far away even. And when I'm reading about it, I want to get in the car and go there. Like, so it's just pleasant to read about this place that I really, really love. It really just, the canyons all around there and stuff. We, we went one time at, we had some friends from New York that came with us and their idea of how to visit the wilderness is very different than ours. Uh, we like to hike and camp and stuff like that. But one really cool idea they had was we got these things called UTVs that are just like these really powerful slightly larger versions of ATVs hmm. and they um they have just like amazing engines and amazing traction on the tires so we're driving out into the sandstone wilderness in these things and like if i hadn't seen the lead car do it first i wouldn't have believed the vehicle could do it he drove at like an almost 90 degree angle straight up one of these sandstone slabs oh, and wow. we like followed them and went back into the back country all around there and just i don't know i could just explore that region forever i mean it's just it's just so we're we're Finally, this next time when we go, we're going to have the truck with us. So we'll have four-wheel drive capability. And I want to go into the backcountry of Canyonlands. And have you ever seen the really famous photo of the river makes this big bend, big horseshoe bend, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a tall tower of sandstone in the middle of it that's got like a make that forms a little island. Do you, right. Have you seen photos of that? Yes. I want to get I want to get back to one of the areas where like places like that are and see that because I've seen it from as you go into Canyonlands from the north, you can get up on the cliffs and have a good, really good vista of the park, but you really can't get down into it. I'm just I'm looking forward to doing that with four wheel drive. But um, but my biggest surprise, my biggest surprise. Oh, I was saying my pleasant surprise was that it was about Moab, right? But anyway, so my biggest surprise about the book is just kind of his politics in general. It's, they're not. So I know lots of like I know lots of people, and this this is how many people I know like this. I don't consider you to be to the far extreme of the people that I know in terms of their environmental beliefs and their, you know, general bag of almost radical left-leaning politics. Like, I know people that are really extreme with that stuff. And it's strange to me to see somebody so clearly in the conservation camp that the other politics are just all over the place. And even some of them are almost like, a little right wing, right? Like he's kind of anti-immigrant. Yeah. And it's, I was thinking about that. I read that and I was thinking, okay, I get how somebody would say, you know, we want to preserve these natural places. Let's keep the country at 200 million people and let's not let a whole bunch of people in. And I was like, I get that. That that makes sense. That's just being kind of selfish, but it's not racist, like inherently. And then I read the things he said in addition to all that. And I was like, Oh no, there's definitely, definitely a bunch of racism in this. Like he's definitely was like, 
you know, because at first he was like, why don't we just preserve these places with not that many people? And I'm like, okay, population control. I get that. That makes sense. And he's like, because if we let in too many people from places whose idea of the world is radically different than ours, totally incompatible with democracy. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Mexicans, they're, 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 their ideas are radically different and totally into I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, right. that's just being a racist. Like, right. But anyway, so, I mean, some of it is he's an old guy. He's born in the 20s, right? I mean, you can, we, I mean? Chalk, no, can no, we chalk it up to that cultural relativism? <laughs> we can tweak, well, historical relativism, right? You read about people from the past and you're just like, oh, you know, they have old fashioned beliefs. But this is a guy, actually, no, he wasn't born in the 20s. He's born about the same time as my dad, I think maybe a little bit earlier. And it's like, you don't have to be uh, the baby boomer generation. They're not all racist. Like that's not what yeah. they were like. You know, the, these are the people that were marching in the, in the sixties and seventies. Like he, he was born them. in 27. Oh, okay. Okay. So he is considerably older than my parents, but yeah. So okay. he's, so he was, so he was like 30 in this, in this, I got the impression he was a much younger man when he was doing the park ranger. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, he was like in his twenties. Well, yeah. Okay. 20. No, he would have been more like 30. 30. Yeah, he, yeah, he would have been, been like 30. 30. That's, that's older than I thought he was. So, yeah, that's that's a big surprise for me. It's just sort of the mixed bag of politics that it's almost like he's a single issue voter, if you know what I mean. Like he would vote Democrat because he's a conservationist, but like a lot of his beliefs don't fit into that camp otherwise. Right. Um, He'd probably vote locally for, for more conservative. He very well might. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I don't know. It's hard, hard to say, but. It's just a more, um, I don't want to say inconsistent, but not not as predictable what he would think about everything. Anyway, I thought that was surprising. So the question is, what are we doing with this? What are we doing with this book? You came up with this. So theoretically, it should be my deciding vote, but you're also the guest. So maybe we just need to talk it through. So what are, what are your arguments for or against? For or against? I, I think that I mean, if you if we take it on the writing of the the more expository experiential writing of it, I feel as though that there was a lot of quality within that okay. as a whole where he get gets into these other parts that I that I struggle with that okay. we've just kind of laid out, which I think you did a great job, you know, with immigration, with Native Americans, with I mean, and for that matter, women, he's oh, he, gets, yeah. he gets yeah, yeah really yeah. misogynistic. We talked about, what were we talking about recently? Oh, we were talking about the early John Hughes films, the, the comedy films from like the early 80s and okay. how females, females are not characters. They're just props. You, that's jokes. right. You said they were props you know? or objects, right? They're very much. And I think, I, I think when you get this far back with these kind of guys, especially like somebody who's living out in the middle of the park and he's like a dude's dude, women are just not, they're not people. They're, they're like, you, him, you miss yeah. this girl you miss this girl because you kind of like have a girl with you right now that's it you don't really there's, there's no personalities there's no the only the only female character in the entire book is the wife that runs off with the with the guy that sold him the claim that the second he turns his back on her you know it's like right. okay this is this is where women are in this world so yeah i don't think it's really this is not a feminist critique that you and i are doing but if it were it would be losing a lot of points like, oh yeah big time no and monkey wrench gang it gets even worse for a lot okay. for a lot of right. for a lot of reasons yeah so that i mean and that so that and it, that and the the other reasons that we've we kind of talked about i don't know i i, I kind of struggle with because I, I feel as though it is a good piece of conservation writing i feel like he his mind was in the right place his experiences were very valid and i i i relate to some of what he said um and when i lived in the parks 
um, I, I felt very similar. I felt like, oh my gosh, yeah. we have just so many people coming into these places. Yeah. Right. Yeah. His, his discussion about having, you know, ha, ha, not letting cars into you some, that, you that, had been, said- that had been an argument that, it, that was still around, by the way, in the 1990s when I was living there. Oh, I think they finally don't let cars. I mean, they're anymore. not, they still, I think they, no, I don't think so. I think they do busing. I think it's like Zion. I think you get to the, you get to the front and I think you take a bus into the valley. I don't think you can drive your personal car into Yosemite Valley anymore. I, wow. I could be wrong. I haven't I'm, been I haven't... since the nineties, but I've been to Zion. And what Zion does is as you get to the mouth of the Valley, you, you have to park and you take tour buses into, they don't allow personal vehicle use anymore into the Valley. Um, and I think someone told me that that's what they do at Yosemite. Now I, I could be wrong, but I was um, there, I was there in 2013 and, and very much not the case. Okay. Okay. Well, I could have been more recent than that, but could be. Okay, that, could be. that's, that's a good piece of evidence though. But um, I know that it's a serious thing that they do in several of the parks. Several of the parks have cut off personal vehicle use because it's just not enough space for all the people that want to do it. Yeah. And, um, it's just, well, and, mess, and just the use, you know? the, the, the use of, of all these cars coming in and out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It suddenly it just reminded me of when you were saying that when you were saying working there is uh, one of my really good friends lived in Annapolis, Maryland. He went to college in Annapolis, Maryland, which is like a small town right on the water on the Chesapeake Bay. It's a very popular tourist destination. And he worked in restaurants and bars there. And they would all talk about the Torons and how much they hated all these these stupid tourists that would come to their town. And I'm like, I get it. I, I get what you're saying. But at the same time, you don't have a job if those people don't come here. So on some level, I mean, nobody's going to pay you to be a bartender in a city where no one goes to the bar. So, I mean, the same, the same, to, the exact same term was used in, in throughout Yosemite? the service industry, okay. in Yosemite, yeah, right. in Yellowstone. So that's not an yeah. uncommon term. Yeah, but the there's industry. a but there's a paradox there, right? There it's is like absolutely. Obviously, obviously, you wouldn't be working in Yellowstone if there weren't a bunch of people coming there. So that's, I always just thought that was kind of a funny thing. But I'm sure people are aware of it. They're just they're just venting, but. Clearly, clearly, you don't really want them to go away, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah, I'm trying to think, if you read San, San County Almanac, you're getting a lot of the same kind of writing, I think somewhat better done. I could see how if you had a course on conservation writing in America, how this would be one of the books you read. So I guess it's just kind of how wide are you casting your net in terms of classics? Because I don't know if I need this book. It's an important one. We can talk about That's one thing I liked about Do the Right Thing. And one of the reasons I voted for that movie, even though I don't think it's like a perfect film or anything like that, is there was just so much to talk about. This one, this definitely gives you plenty to talk about from the oh, book. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no shortage of things to talk about. I don't even know if we talked about 20% of the ideas that popped into my head while reading this book. So I don't know. I kind of want to vote against it. I don't know. Why don't you nudge me either way? I'm teetering. I, I would, I would, I would, I mean, comparing, comparing it to San County Almanac. Is uh-huh. that a, is that a, is that a fair comparison? Mm. I think it is. I think it's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty fair. They're very similar. They're different in time, obviously. But right. e- despite that, I think Aldo Leopold's coming out a little bit on top. Um, I, I agree. hundred percent. Even though he's older and I don't remember him going into any like racist diatribes about native Americans or anything like that. I, maybe yeah. there's probably, there's probably some things if it comes up, I'm sure he's not like super woke about native people, but I don't remember him saying much of anything, but I don't either. Uh, so in that, in that, so, in that regard, 
I think this does not. This book doesn't stand up to if we if we're if we're considering Sand County and Almanac, Sand County Almanac right. a classic. Can we can we say that this book is the same quality to 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 compare it to? And I don't think we can. I so no maybe not. I don't know the the story of the trip down the Glen Canyon just before it gets dammed up and destroyed forever is pretty precious. Right. Like that's that's definitely something that I'm glad I have an account of that in any way. Right. Like, by the way, you can read Powell. Uh, He wrote a really fascinating story about almost the same trip. Uh, Who's a really interesting guy, by the way. I don't know how much you've read about him. He was a geologist. um, He was I think he did get some training as a geologist, but he was like a Civil War veteran that had had one of his arms, you know, amputated during the war and then gone back and fought a bunch more battles in the civil war after losing his arm and then went on these huge expeditions out west to like chart you know a lot of of a lot of what we got after the mexican war basically and uh, just some areas that are I, I read national geographic did an article on the grand canyon on a through hike of the grand canyon it, at the time they wrote that article fewer people have transited the grand canyon than had been on the moon right that's that's what kind of region we're talking about. That's how inaccessible these parts of the country are. And Powell's right. doing it with one arm in 1870. You know, I mean, it's, I don't know, that's just pretty fascinating. But anyway, so I don't know. I don't know what to do with this one. I don't know what to do with this one. I guess it'd be pretty hard to put together like a short canon of American conservation fi- a, a writing without including this. I think that's I right. think people would be, I think people would be like, where's, where's, where's Desert Solid there? It's, why isn't that in here? If you, if right. you had like a class without mentioning that. So it's I mean, I, I, you know, taking NRPI 101, <laughs> look, thinking back to that, we did, we did go into, we did go into, uh, we did go into like Thoreau, we went into Muir, we went into Leopold. Uh, we didn't necessarily include Abby in it. Um, and no, but he's also more potentially, modern. potentially because he was more, because he's farther to the left. I think philosophically on on conservation versus protectionism, maybe a little more yeah, that's probably true. centered center right on social issues. Well, because it's weird, because right, if you think about it, conservation, you want to conserve, you want to protect what exists. A lot of what motivates people on the right is that same impulse. You want things to stay the same as they are, right? There's yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of you know, hyper-capitalism and things like that on the right as well. And then there's also some nationalism and things like that. But there's this, there is a strand of the personality types that gravitate towards the right, which are just like, why don't we just keep what we have? What we have is okay. Let's not just, you know, let's not destroy that. Let's not, in the, in the name of progress. So you can see how that's not necessarily a conflict in a lot of the ways, you know? Right. Let's and- not build, let's not build the Glen Canyon, Glen Canyon Dam is in a way sort of a conservative thing to say. It's like, let's just keep what we have. Sure. Let's and I mean, not, and you have you know, yeah, guys like Roosevelt who were right there with you. Right? Yeah. You think he, he was against that kind of thing? I thought he no, was. He was, he, no, he was. No, he was. That's what I'm saying. Is that he was. Oh, right yeah, there. yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's progress. It's, he's a progressive, if you will. There's weird at different times. The parts of this political spectrum have been treated differently, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's like. I think this one probably go ahead and read it in a class. I think I think maybe I'll I, I want to go with reservations about what I think of Abby and some of the stuff he's doing, but I think this was a good read. I, I think this is something people could read. It's not I think this could go in one of these classes. You'd want to have a conversation about the things we're talking about, the, the, the problematic aspects of it. But yeah, I, let's do it. Let's toast. 
All right. We toast it. All right. I can, I can, I can get behind it in, in that I think it's valuable to, um, to have a variety of different perspectives. Yes. And it's good to talk. It's good to get us talking. I think that's important too. So, which I think this book did, obviously. Definitely. Definitely. Too much. I'm waxing a little bit too uh, poetic about the Moab, but whatever. It's a really fascinating place. I would like to present an invitation to you to come meet me in Utah sometime. Check out those parks. There's five parks in Southern Utah, Bryce, Zion, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands and Arches, all of which are like in my top national parks. I mean, they're just phenomenal places. And like Capitol Reef is kind of inaccessible, not inaccessible, but just remote and does not get the traffic of some of the other places. It's just a really awesome place. But anyway, so cheers. Cheers. Toast to this. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's going to do it for us for touching the classics for, uh, this episode, whatever episode this ends up being, we might be in the forties by the time this one actually drops. So we'll see what happens with that, but thanks for joining me, Bill. Thank you, Dave. you taking the time. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Happy to come back We're, again. I'll have to find something else. Definitely. Definitely. We're, we'll, uh, I don't have any sound for the cheersing because we're both drinking from cans and it's just not gonna, you know, clink, clink. Clink, yeah, doesn't even, not even appropriate, but all right. So, um, this all is right. uh, for Touching the Classics is Dave MacArthur and Bill Hodges. Talk to you later. Peace out. That's it for episode 43 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, hang on to that gin, vermouth, and Campari for those Negroni cocktails. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know what your favorite national park is. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.